We're in the study of the book of Romans. We're in Romans 4. We're going to start at verse 16 in just a second. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to that, Romans 4. And as we've seen leading up to this passage uh, that we're going to read today, is that through the first part of the book, uh, Paul, the apostle who wrote Romans, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has gone to great lengths to show us that no one can ever earn the righteousness of God. Nobody is even worthy of it. And so it's just been God's gift uh, in, received in faith. Um, you can't get it by observing all the rules and being good and obe- obeying the law, which flew in the face of the Jewish uh, listeners that uh, perhaps would have been reading this. And so he brings up Abraham last week in the first part of Romans 4, and he continues on with the story of Abraham in the latter part of Romans 4, because Abraham was revered as this great man, this uh, father of the Jewish people, this man who has such wonderful faith, such an example for everybody to follow. And Paul's making the point that not even Abraham was declared good and righteous and by his actions and his activities, but it was by his faith that he received the grace of God. It wasn't his rule keeping. And what Paul wants you to know is that if you think that you can be good enough to earn God's favor, you can't. And developing that whole system leads you to this place where, well, it's just kind of fatalistic. Everybody loses. And everybody deserves the wrath of God. And we're all under condemnation. No one can stand in the face, in the, in the face of Christ and God and be declared righteous. It's only his wrath. And so we pick it up in verse 16 because he's just made this point. You cannot earn it. You cannot be good enough. And so in verse 16, he says this. For this reason, it, righteousness, is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. His example of a faith is the father to all those who have faith. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, not just the Jewish nation, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, Abraham, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. He'd been given this promise. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. That's almost funny if you think about it. Without without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise that God had given him, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only, as it Was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, you and I, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. And I say a resounding amen to that. (laughs) And I ask the question, 
what makes a person great? What, what made Abraham great? What is it that we would say, well, there's a great person. There's a great spiritual person. Let's take it a step further. Does everybody possess the capability of greatness, spiritual greatness? Does everybody possess the capability, the possibility of a spiritual greatness? This past week, I attended two different conferences. Just spent the whole week just listening and soaking in teaching of others and worship. And I spent Monday and Tuesday in Dallas. Emphasis of the conference was about intimacy with God, our own personal walk with the Lord and how it's expressed through ministry and through leadership. And I spent Thursday and Friday in Atlanta. The conference theme was this, Awaken the Wonder. Awaken the wonder. And it was all about this faith, this believing in a God who can do everything that he says that he will do. A God who's able to do things that are beyond what we can even come up with or ask for. It was all about stepping out and being vulnerable to risk, to being able to take risks that God calls us to take. And letting seeds of God's planting in our souls to, to flourish, to to give life to them, to not stifle them, to believe. You know, I thought about that as I'm listening to all these messages and I'm thinking about this scripture that I'm going to bring to you today. And so it's amazing how God just kind of puts things together sometimes to kind of get through my thick head. And I asked the question, why are some people great spiritual people that we would look at their life and we would say, man, look at what they've been able to do. Look what God's been able to accomplish through their life. And why are there some people like that? And there are some people who aren't. And I guess I've come to believe that uh, it really kind of comes down and boils down to this kind of one thing. And that's this, that some people believe God is a God who does incredible things that will use the likes of you and me. And there's others that just don't. Oh, they might, they might say they do. I mean, if I asked you to vote today, how many of you believe in God as a supernatural God that does supernatural things? We'd all vote for that, right? But I would say for many, it's just kind of something that we have locked in our belief system that's never really put into action. We'll talk about more. Talk about that a little bit more in a minute. The scripture I read says that Abraham contemplated his impossible situation. Well, let me ask you, have you ever had an impossible situation? Huh. I bet it's not as impossible as Abraham's. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90. And even back then when people lived like 900 years, that was old. I, I, sometimes I hear people, well, they were just adolescents. <laughs> I mean, they lived to 900. No, they were old, past childbearing age. But it's, it's the, the point that Paul's making here in the, in the book of Romans, he says that Abraham never wavered that God would not complete what God had called him, what God had said he would do. That God is going to do this. He believed that God does that which is impossible. And so my first point is this. Faith believes God does the impossible. Do you believe that today? Faith believes that God does the impossible. Well, then I'm going to ask you the follow-up question. 
if we were to have a conversation, what evidence would you provide for me the way you live your life and what's going on in your life and what is happening in your life that reflects the belief that you believe that statement? I mean, do you really believe in a God that does the impossible and that God does the impossible in your life and in the situations that you face? I mean, I'm sure that Abraham came across people all the time that said he was crazy. I mean, wouldn't you have told Abraham he was crazy? He's going around with his cane. I'm going to be a dad. And look at my wrinkled old wife over here. She's going to be a mom. You would have said what? Abraham, you are crazy. You know, sad to say, the church is full of realists. Realists. There are people who would explain to Abraham how futile his belief was. and I mean, just think about all the examples we have in Scripture. It's just like the people who mock Noah when he's building an ark under clear skies, right? I wonder what the people of Jericho thought about Joshua and those people walking around the wall outside. They think walking around is going to knock these walls down? Or I can't imagine being a, a, a person in the children of Israel when Joshua, Joshua comes and explains the battle plan. Can you imagine? Here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to walk around, the, we're going to walk around these walls a long time, and then we're going to uh, blow a horn, and then we're going to yell real loud. That is our battle strategy. We would have said, Joshua, you are crazy. Gideon. Gideon's going to fight this great battle. And he says what? I'm fighting this great battle, but my army is what? Too big. I'll never win with this many people, this many soldiers, this many fighters. I need to win with less. And so I'm going to whittle it down to 300 as we face all of these people because it's what God told me to do. And I believe in a God who can do anything. Can you imagine being one of the children of Israel on that night of the Passover where the blood of the lamb and the set free and Pharaoh said, yes, you can go and you go and you march out of Egypt and headed for the promised land and Pharaoh changes his mind and he starts chasing you and now you're cornered because here comes the army that is going to overwhelm you. You can never stand up against them. And right in front of you is what? The Red Sea. Impossible situation. And Moses comes to you and he says, I, got a bad, I know what we're going to do. What's that, Moses? He says, I'm going to raise my staff. And you would have said what? Moses, you are crazy. That's what God told me to do. I believe in a God who can do anything. I believe in a God who can make these waters wall up on each side and we'll walk across on dry ground and he's going to engulf. All. I, don't, I don't know if Moses really knew what God was going to do, but God said, raise your staff. And all I know is to do what God told me to do. And believe that I have a God that works in supernatural ways. And the problem with most of us is that we have this faith up in our heads in a powerful, amazing God. And we leave it there. There's those moments in our life where we feel compelled. There's a seed of something growing. There's a vision of something growing in our heart. There's maybe a song we need to write. Maybe a book we need to write. Maybe a conversation we need to have. Maybe a job we need to apply for. Maybe there's something brewing inside of me. I just, I just can't. Who am I to think that I could do that? 
You ever thought that? Who am I to think that I could do that? I am so glad that God doesn't look at what we can do to say, well, I'm going to go with that, right? God looks at what we do. He says, I'm not depending on that. I'm depending on what I can do in you. So we get this idea, this, this dream, this vision, or whatever it is, and we squelch it because who are we? I mean, I'm 100 years old. Can't father a nation. And we opt for playing it safe. And that's why Jesus, uh, James wrote, what? Faith without works is, is dead. It's meaningless. It's useless. It's to be cast away. Why do you even have it? Verse 21 of Romans 4 says, And being fully assured that what God had promised, this is Abraham, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So the point is this, faith believes God is always able. So I'm going to ask you, do you believe that statement? Do you believe that God is always able? And you know, some of you are getting wise to this, now you're just kind of, maybe. Maybe I believe that, Right? Because you know what I'm going to ask, right? What in your life, the way you live, the way that faith is expressed through you, the way that God is using you, the way that God is shining His light into this world would reflect that you really believe this, that God is always able. You know, at the first conference I went to, Franklin Graham showed up for about 15 minutes. He wasn't on the schedule. He just came by. And if you're Franklin Graham and you come by a conference, there's 4,000 people there, what, is, what does the conference do? It'll let you talk, right? I mean, you're Franklin Graham. And so he gets up there for about 15 minutes and he talks about his dad, Billy Graham, for just a minute. Do you know that Billy Graham is 97 years old? And Franklin said that uh, he hasn't lost one step in his mind. It's as sharp as it was 50, 60 years ago. And as I was thinking about the context of the the conference and the context of this passage, I began to think about, I wonder if Billy Graham had people in his life that says, Billy, you can't do that. I wonder if he had some realists on his team that says, you're going to rent out a stadium? What if, you you realize how expensive that's going to be? And what if nobody comes? Or what if we have a stadium that holds 15,000 and there's 800 people there? We're going to look foolish. How many, of you, how many of you remember Billy Graham crusades? I mean, when you think of Billy Graham, I mean, you think of things like George Beverly Shea, right? You think of just as I am, right? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? And you think about at the end, I mean, I would, you know, I would listen to Billy Graham messages and I would go, you know, that's really just the plain, simple gospel. Have you ever listened to one of Billy Graham's messages and go, I didn't really learn anything new there. I just, I, but somehow there was just this, whew, and people said, I need to come to Jesus. And they would just come in droves to come to Jesus because there was some point in there Billy Graham just said, this is what God wants me to do, and I have to do it because I just do what God tells me to do. I just am in relationship with him, and he has expressed his will for me, and I will do this. I don't care what people say. I don't care if I look foolish. I don't care if nobody comes. I got to do what God's called me to do. Franklin Graham expressed his vision right now. For whatever reason, God has laid a burden on him for our nation. And he says, Lord, what can I do about that? And the Lord says, I want you to have prayer meetings all across this nation. I want you to mobilize the church to pray. And so he is in 2016, he's mobilizing 50 prayer meetings 
He's going from state capital to state capital to state capital, calling the church to just come together and just pray and intercede, hoping that the Lord of heaven would hear and heal our land and forgive our sins. We're in a desperate situation, folks, in our land, aren't we? And, and, and he's, just saying, he's just believing that the church is the light of Christ, the salt of the earth, the vehicle, the only vehicle that will turn around the situation that we face. Uh, he said, and get your mind around this now, he said no political party and no politician is going to save us. Can you believe he would say that? I mean, the next election, if we get the right guy, girl, excuse me, if we just put the right person in charge, that we're going to be all better. He believes in a God that can change things, that is able. And that's where we need to place our hope. You know, if I were to ask you, What's the definition of faith? In the church today, we usually go to one particular verse. If somebody says, can you define for me what faith is? We usually go to what? Hebrews 11. That's the great, what we know is the great faith chapter. Story after story after story of how God used uh, people who put their faith in him. And it starts with this verse. I'm going to just talk about these two phrases in this verse. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That first phrase, faith is the assurance, or some translations say the confidence of things hoped for. It's another way of saying faith just knows God is going to accomplish His purpose, no matter what. I can believe in the future what is hoped for, something coming. I put my, I have this assurance, this confidence that God will accomplish His will. In fact, we're so sure of it that we'll, we're willing to do radical things in response to it. We live in hope. I got a question. Don't you think there's so many people, even people of faith, even Christians that have more faith in what they have than what they hope for? Think about that. We have more faith in what we have than what we hope for. Well, one example is your money. Let's talk about your money. We always like to talk about your money, right? Oh, here he goes again. You know, one, one of the common questions that people in church, especially church leadership have is this. Why do so few people do what God says to do when it comes to their money? Well, it's because... They have confidence in what they have, not confidence in what they hope for, or what God can do in a miraculous way. If I have this and I give it away, guess what? I now don't have it. And this is where my confidence is. As long as I can hold it and feel it and see it, I have confidence in this. And if I let go of it, then it's all hope. Oh, yeah. I know Malachi. <sighs> can't stand that verse. Floodgates. I know. I have it. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I'm here to tell you, following God a lot of times doesn't make sense. Amen? I mean, it just doesn't. 
one of the pastors at the conference, he, he told about when his church was young and they were just starting out, they didn't have a whole lot of people and they were meeting in the storefront, believing that God could do wonderful things. He's meeting with God and his time with the, alone with the Lord and he's praying and he's reading scripture and it becomes very, very clear what, that God wants to say something to him on this particular morning. And he says, okay, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I want it to be clear as he read and he studied. He just felt very impressed and very led by God that his little struggling church should raise money, $20,000. God was very specific that morning. Raise $20,000 and give it to this other church that's trying to build a building. Now, if that pastor came to you and you were in that congregation you would say, Pastor, you are, yeah, yeah, See, we understand it, right? And he did admit that he asked God for a little bit more clarification as to why we're doing this. He didn't get any. It was just, this is what I want you to do. He says, God, our church is in your hands. My ministry is in your hands. My reputation is in your hands. And I don't really care what people think. I don't really care how they'll respond. All I care about is this with you. So he went to his congregation. He says, I really feel like God wants us to raise $20,000. He wants us to give it away. Can you imagine being an underpaid staff person on that staff? Huh. And they did that. They raised $20,000. They were able to accomplish that, and they blessed this other church. And did God? do you think God used something like that? God bonded these two ministries together that exist to this day. Do you think that God opened up a blessing and and, and power upon that young, struggling church where they had their building and not too long after that? That there was just, a, just an anointed presence of the Holy Spirit's power at work because God knew that they would do what He said. That they would respond in faith that He's a God that can do all things. I remember going into my first board meeting of the first church I pastored in California. I had been to the church about a... A week or two, and I examined the church budget, and I, I remember so, being so excited to walk into my first board meeting, my first pastorate, and announce to the board that I really think that we ought to vote to slash the church budget by 40%, which also meant me, because it was a lot of the budget. They said, why are we going to do that? I said, well, two reasons. Number one, you can't afford this. They said, well, yeah, we kind of knew that. You did? <laughs> well, Thanks. And not only that, you're not giving any money to anybody else. You're not giving any money to anybody else. And we've got to give at least 10% of what we have as a church to have other ministries, to bless other ministries. I mean, that's just, you all understand, that's just what we do, right? They said, Pastor, look at the books. Realists. They didn't say it, but I knew they thought it. Pastor, you are <laughs> crazy. But they did it. They said, well, he's new. First pastorate. He'll learn. He'll learn. We adjusted the books, we started honoring God with our money, we started doing, blessing other ministries, and that church leadership board found, they, they, they experienced the supernatural provision of Almighty God upon them, and people just say, I'll do whatever you want me to do, Father. I don't care what it costs me, I don't care my reputation, I just really don't. I'm just going to, I just want this right. The other phrase is, the conviction of things not seen. Let me say this. Our faith is not in things that we can see. Our faith is not in the visible. Our faith is in the invisible. We get that, right? But a lot of people, they just don't live that way. They just live with what they see. I mean, why do people stay in jobs they hate? You ever been in a job you hate? You hated? 
Are you, don't raise your hand, are you in a job that you just hate? I've seen it so many times where people will whine about their jobs, complain about their jobs. They just say, I hate this job. This is, I'm like a square peg in a round hole. I don't belong. I just, but it's a paycheck. And month after month after month after month, they just keep struggling away. And then one day they get fired or laid off. And after the initial fear, they do what? I hated that job anyway, right? <laughs> Number one. Number two, they begin this adventure with God that God's been trying to open up to them all this time. I mean, why do people keep dating people they always fight with? Have you ever asked that question? Why do people keep going to dead churches? I mean, why are people stingy instead of generous? I mean, I mean they're believing in what is visible, what they can see, hold on to, hold tight, hoard. And it closes that chapter with these words. Now, verse, verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written and that it was credited to him. Paul's expanding his audience, but for our sake also, you and I. Just like Abraham, it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This same righteousness that was credited to Abraham is available to us if we just believe. And the point I would make is that faith is the essence of a relationship with God. Faith is, an, is the essence of a relationship with God. And people who are afraid, people who live in fear, people who hoard, people who hold on to fear that if I follow God, I'm going to have to give it up. And if I, I just believe what I can see and feel and touch. And if they go and they spend time with the Lord, what's he going to deal with? Unbelief. He's going to deal with this fear. And so what happens over time is they become so clinging to this that they begin to let this. I don't want to go talk to him anymore. He always deals with that. He always brings me back here. He wants to set me free from that. And so we come into his presence and we say, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'll move wherever you ask me to move. I'll take whatever job you I'll. I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about what other people say. I'll do it. And how do we get there? You might be this like a, a typical modern American Christian that you kind of got God in your life and you go to church and you do what you're supposed to do. You try to live a clean life, pray as often as you can and just generally be a nice, good person. And yeah, you never see the supernatural activity of God. You don't really see prayers answered. You really don't see much of that going on. But life's still pretty good. What do you do if you want to be on this faith adventure with God? I'm going to read eight verses from the book of Isaiah, the sixth chapter. This gives a prescription. It gives an antidote to faithlessness. He writes, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. You get the picture, right? Awesome. He goes on to describe it. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one would call out to another and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds, the, the hinges trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke, the glory of God was everywhere. 
How would you respond if you found yourself in the very throne room of the Father, encompassed by the very glory of God? You would respond just like Isaiah responded. He said, woe is me, I am ruined. (laughs) I'm desperate, I'm lost, I'm hopeless, I'm sinful. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Your glory has exposed me for who I really am. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Amen. Grace. You don't deserve it, but. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I, Isaiah said, what? Here am I. Send me. You get the progression? You come into the glory of God. Come into the very throne room, the presence of God, and you may be reading something, listening to something. There's something about the, the presence of God is so heavy upon you, and you understand Him and His glory. You see Him in the fullness of who He is, and you're exposed. You see the you see the sin, you see the doubt, the unbelief. He says, "You are forgiven. Grace is extended. Your redemption is secure." And he says, I, who am I going to send? His call goes out. Who's, who's going to be a part of my mission? Who's going to exhibit that faith in me that has no borders? Who is it going to be? One thing I noticed is that Isaiah didn't ask for any more information. He didn't say, where are you going to send me? What am I going to be doing? He didn't have to. Why? Because he'd seen the glory of God. He'd seen the glory of God. He says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do, where I go. Send me. And I, I wish I could tell you that it turned out well for Isaiah. <laughs> I wish I could tell you, and if you read on right there in the same chapter, chapter 6, it goes on to tell that you're going to talk to people who won't listen to you. <laughs> By human terms, you're going to have no success all your life. And Isaiah says, I don't care. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father, in the quietness of these moments, I just believe there's people here today who have lived a very comfortable, organized, structured life that has just kind of structured the miraculous out. I pray, Father God, that you would Dismantle those things in our life that hem you in. I pray, Father God, that you would be unleashed in our life. I pray, Father God, for our church. I pray that our church wouldn't be just a comfortable place where people are able to come and sing certain songs and have a good lesson and and never really see or experience the, the movement, anointing, the power, whatever, of God Almighty that is expressed through people who believe in a miraculous, able God. 
Father, I pray that you would do whatever it takes. And I know it's a dangerous prayer, but I pray that you would do whatever it takes in my life and the lives of leaders here and the lives of each family, each person here in the corporate life that we experience as a church. I pray that you would do whatever it takes to bring us to a deeper level of faith in you. I pray, Father God, that by the ways in which we organize, the ways in which we spend money, the ways in which we give away money, the ways in which we operate, Father, we'll just continually be showing the world you. Let us take our hands off of it, Father. May we believe in you. 